Hello everyone, I'm Megan. I'm Amelia. And this is And That's on Equity. In this episode, we'll be interviewing Professor Kimberly Bain, who is an English professor at UBC. But before we get started, we'd like to start with acknowledging that we are recording this podcast on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam people, and we wish to honor their history and presence. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Professor Bain, who is an English professor at UBC. She specializes in Black studies and explores theories and histories relating to race, gender, African diaspora, and so much more. We hope you enjoy the episode. So just to um, give a bit of a background, uh, we wanted to start by asking what are your areas of study and what courses are you teaching currently at UBC? Yeah, um, so my area of study is um, Black Studies, um, which is the field that includes the history, the theory, the philosophies, uh, the cultural productions um, that have to do with the African diaspora, um, whether that is in the US, in the continent, uh, in the Caribbean, globally, etc. Um, my particular focus is on the US context uh, with some extra focus on the Caribbean and a little bit um, in South Africa. My own sort of research is around um, racial capitalism and blackness. So, so one project has to do with blackness and breathing and it's longer historical genealogies. And the other one has to do with blackness and dirt. Um, and it's long histories, theories, philosophies, et cetera. Um, so I sort of work from the early modern period to the contemporary moment. Um, so for this semester, I'll be teaching a course, I am teaching a course called um, Racial Capitalism in the Flesh. Uh, It's a theory course in the English department. It's English 386 is the course number. Um, And so that semester, this semester we're gonna be covering in that course, um, just sort of the longer histories and theories around racial capitalism. So we'll be starting off with um, its uh, development in in the early modern period. So thinking through empire, thinking through questions of enslavement, thinking through questions of indigenous dispossession, uh, thinking through questions of indentured servitude and moving to the sort of more contemporary moment and thinking about how racialization and capitalism work in tandem. Um, One of the really great phrases I like to say is that racism require, or rather capitalism requires racism and racism enshrines like sort of inequalities of capitalism in many ways. So um, that's sort of the focus of the course. And then next year I'll be teaching some other courses, which I don't know yet um, because we haven't been assigned our courses, so. Great, that sounds so interesting. I'd never really um, heard um, that phrase before that um, capitalism requires racism. I think that's really thought provoking. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, Next, would you mind telling us a little bit about your journey to UBC, how you ended up being a professor here? Yeah. So uh, my journey starts perhaps all the way back in high school. Um, So um, the reason I started high school is because I think sometimes um, for some folks, this sort of journey to become a professor in general is a sort of not quite a straight arrow, but one that they sort of feel like they have a calling to it. But I came to the profession in a sort of roundabout way. So I began with high school because after I was finished with high school, um, I, or rather as I was wrapping up high school, I wasn't sure I was gonna actually go into college. Um, I grew up very low income. Um, and so I didn't think, and I, I grew up in the US. And so college obviously is very expensive there unless you are able to get scholarships, et cetera. Um, but my great uh, dilemma was that how, even if, even though I was getting scholarships, a lot of them weren't enough to actually cover the costs, right? And I wasn't willing to take out loans 
um, because that was just not an expense that I wanted to add onto my life, right? So I wasn't sure I was going to go to college. Um, I did, however, get a, a few full rides. I ended up going um, to undergrad at Amherst College, which was fantastic. Um, it was great. And while I was there, um, I really struggled to figure out what I wanted to do after undergrad, um, precisely because I had um, not thought I was going to even go to college to begin with. And so I just didn't know and I couldn't um, figure out exactly what I wanted to do after. Uh, so I took a lot of courses. I majored in undergrad in English and in East Asian studies uh, with a focus on China. Um, and so I wasn't sure what I wanted to do exactly. I thought maybe I'll go into publishing, which is a sort of common thing that I think a lot of English majors uh, think about doing. So I thought maybe I'll go into publishing and do that for a little bit and see what I wanted to do. I thought that um, maybe I would think about doing something that had to do with international relations of some sort because I've been um, learning Mandarin and I've been really fascinated with just like more about like China and its culture, et cetera. Um, but I wasn't really quite sure. I knew I wanted to write. Um, I knew I wanted to research because I always had considered myself a writer. Um, I did creative writing courses when I was an undergrad. Um, and so I wanted to do writing, I wanted to do research, but I didn't really think of those as avenues of things that I could do. One, because I just said like, that's not gonna make any sort of money. And as the daughter of immigrants, I just didn't I think that was gonna happen, right? <laughs> like, you know, it's very relatable. <laughs> um, I, when I started undergrad, I was like, I'm gonna do med. I'm gonna be pre-med because that's gonna get me a degree and it's gonna make me money. Um, and, you know, the turning point, the reason why I ended up even majoring in English and, and East Asian studies was because I had a conversation with my father uh, where I was explaining to him that I was really struggling with the sort of difficulty of loving, you know, studying and research and writing mm -hmm. and loving creative work and wanting to make sure I could, you know, provide in some way. And my father said, he's always known that I'm someone who enjoys sleep and that if I became a doctor, I would never get any sleep. <laughs> Jokes on him because I became a doctor anyway and I still don't get any sleep. You know, just not the kind of doctor we thought I would be. Um, but um, it wasn't until my final year um, in undergrad that a professor that I had who was a mentor and who I was a research assistant for um, pulled me aside one day while we were talking and just said, have you ever thought about going to grad school or, you know, being a professor? This is like a profession that, you know, is an option for you. Mm -hmm. And I said, isn't it expensive? And she said, well, yes, depending on which school you go to, but some schools will actually just pay you to go to grad school. And I said, really? And she said, yes, did you not know this? And I said, no, I had no idea it was an option, right? So after I graduated from undergrad, um, I did a post-bac in digital humanities. So basically a post-bac is um, a position that you take up after you get your um, bachelor's degree. Um, it's a quasi-academic institution. So we call it like an alt-ac position. Uh, and um, I took that up for a year. Um, my funding in that grant, because my, my position was funded through a grant, um, was only for one year. So I applied to grad school that same fall after I graduated from undergrad. Um, I got into grad school and I went. And when I went there, you know, one of the things one of my mentors had told me in advance was, you know, grad school and the academy in general is not a very kind place to Black women. It's not a kind place to Black femmes. Um, and so if you're going to go into it, make sure that how you... Um, are always cultivating multiple options um, mm -hmm. as to what you wanna do, right? So it's not only that you wanna go into the academy, but it's particular things and goals that you have in mind that can be transferred in other places, right? So an example of that would be, um, I really enjoy, like I said, um, uh, mentorship. I enjoy being a mentor, I enjoy receiving mentorship, I enjoy creating communities. Mm -hmm. um, creating community is not something that exclusively happens in the academy, it can happen in so many different spaces. And so I, one of the things I held in mind as I was going through grad school is how do I wanna create communities outside of the academy, et cetera, right? So I went through grad school. Um, while I was in grad school, my final year, I thought I was gonna just leave it. I said, I had enough of this. <laughs> I'm done with the academy. I'm done with grad school. It's not happening anymore. I'm leaving. 
Um, and I, you know, I had a conversation with my advisors and they said, well, we will support you if you decide to leave all of these things. Um, but why don't you just try going in the job market, uh, for the, for the, like the academic job market. And I went on it, um, and I got a job. I was at Tufts university before I came to UBC. Um, and then, um, I decided I would go in the market again, um, after some months and I went on the job. There was a job opening here at UBC. Um, and I applied there and I got in. Now it seems really easy that I got a job and I just, you know, thing, but in fact, the academic job market is pretty terrible right now. Um, and um, as you may or may not have heard from many of the faculty um, that are in it right now, um, it's not a very easy um, place to get a job. It's, it's not easy to even get an interview oftentimes. And I say that because I think there are many ways that um, the way that labor is structured in the university um, has increasingly become precarious, right? So we have um, universities structuring themselves so that how more and more folks who are being hired are being hired, hired as adjuncts or lecturers. Mm -hmm. um, so they're being paid per course um, and they're being underpaid significantly and overworked significantly. Um, the same thing with tenure track positions, which are not available. I'm in a tenure track position, um, which basically means that um, in a certain amount of years, I will go up quote unquote for tenure, uh, which essentially just means that how it'll determine whether or not I get one promoted um, to the level of an associate professor and two, um, whether or not I will have some sort of form of job security, right? Um, so mm -hmm. basically um, most assistant professors, their contracts are only for a number of years. And then if they don't get tenure, they get fired. And if you do get tenure, you get kept on to be an associate, et cetera. Um, and so basically the way the universities are structured, which universities are obviously corporations now very much so, um, it's become a process that is extremely harrowing to be on the job market. Um, mm. And it becomes even more difficult depending on what field you're in. Um, my field, Black Studies, um, happened to have a lot of positions open both times I went on the market and UBC happened to have one of those positions. And so I applied, um, it was a cluster hire, which means that how there are multiple hires happening at the same time. Um, and I was hired as a 19th centuryist. Um, yeah, so that's the story of the very long story of how mm. I end up into this profession as a professor. Um, now, as a professor, um, I still firmly believe in cultivating a sort of wider um, understanding of what it is that I enjoy and why I do it. Mm -hmm. And so back to the sort of example that I gave you about community building, um, again, community building doesn't happen to have to happen exclusively within the academy. And so it's right, always yeah. about how do you extend the work that you do maybe in the, the classroom to other spaces, right? Um, and how do you, you know, um, find other folks who are interested in doing the same thing? How do you get students the resources that they need? So these are the kinds of questions that I've been brought, uh, bringing up. Am I committed to being a professor? Um, yes and no. Um, you know, <laughs> there are lots of perks of being a professor, you know, um, or the idealized version of being a professor, which is not really true in most places. But you know, we get to do, we have time to do research. Sometimes um, we get to teach, you know, which many of us really enjoy and love. Um, even though many times our jobs do not uh, prioritize it in a sense, like uh, the metrics by which we're, we're um, uh, sort of measured uh, do not consider teaching to be a, a, as significant a priority. Um, but many of us enjoy teaching and love it. Um, but um, are my sort of dreams and hopes for the future all tied up in this profession? No. Uh, my, my dream in life is to retire um, because <laughs> who, who wants to work in a capitalist system, right? Am I, am yeah. I right? Um, why, <laughs> exactly. If you could just retire and have a good time. Um, but really it's about these other things in life that you know bring me joy, so yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Um, I especially resonated with the part that you spoke about um, as an immigrant, um, having to do those checks and balances. I feel a lot of international students can really relate to that. Um, I know I certainly have um, trying to grapple with, okay, I 
I'm really passionate about this one area, but oh, does it does that make me money? Is that you know worth the amount of time and energy my parents are putting into me being here at this institution? And you kind of feel like you don't want to waste the opportunity that you have, knowing that you know there's just not that many opportunities for you know people like you. And so um, I definitely really resonated with that um, aspect of your journey. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a real thing that I think never dissipates. Honestly, um, mm -hmm. unfortunately, I mean, I, I tell lots of folks, you know, as many as people as possible, if you can afford it, and if there's a structure there, you know, obviously go to therapy to work through these things, and that's one of the things I do all the time: work through that that tension of like, oh, how do you, right. how do, you do the thing <laughs> that you know. You've got, to be, make sure you, you've got to live in a sort of capitalist system that doesn't care about certain people and oftentimes mm -hmm. will exploit them, et cetera. But also how do you like make that change that you want to see? Um, and how do you live a life that's true to yourself? Um, mm -hmm. And so the one thing I'll say that's wonderful is that how as an undergrad, most of the time your major doesn't actually matter right. um, when you go <laughs> into, into the, you know, get a job. So I am a firm believer in just like take, it doesn't, don't, don't focus so much on the, the majors that you're doing, but focus on like the classes you're taking, like just take classes mm -hmm. that you genuinely are passionate about if you can. I know sometimes for majors, you have to take, you know, required courses and you can't escape those. But if you can find those courses that you really enjoy, like, okay, let's say you've got a major in pre-med, but you really enjoy creative writing, like take those creative writing courses, mm -hmm. you know, because that actually, I think sets you up for like found, like makes a, a foundation for you as a full human being, rather than just a, a being right. that's meant to be productive and like, you know, right, grind yeah. all the way uh, through. Um, so just enjoy yourself as much as you can. It's hard. It's hard. And I admit it. Um, especially in these sort of pandemic times, but yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of leads um, perfectly into our next question, which is um, what has surprised you the most about working in academia and how is it different from what you imagined? I think um, I wasn't sure what the what academia would look like at all before I think I started grad school. Like I just wasn't sure what it was, what it involved. When I was an undergrad, the, the undergrad I went to was a small liberal arts college. Um, so the sort of um, pace of, uh, or the, the form that the academy takes is very different. Um, so at the liberal arts school that I was at, the classes are very small. Usually it's about 10 to 15 students max, you know, in discussion seminars. Um, most of the classes I took were seminars, um, so they were either an hour and 20 minutes long or three hours long. Most of the classes I actually took were three hours long. Um, lots of intense reading. Students who are attending it, um, oftentimes it's not that they're only, it's not that their identity is a student, but rather their um, life worlds are um, are crafted by the ecosystem of the university, right? Which mm -hmm. is to say that you live on campus, you oftentimes right. work on campus, all of your social events are on campus, mm -hmm. and so there's a very tight ecology, right? Um, and so what a professor looked like when I went there was a very particular thing, right? Which was that how, oh, professors are these people who really usher you through the sort of academic journey, right? Mm -hmm. They um, have a very intense, um, close uh, professional relationship, right? So that how mm -hmm. they're, because the classes are small, it really means that you have a lot of one-to-one -one with professors. They're people right, yeah. who are there to usher you through the sort of your own intellectual journeys. Um, they're people who are around sort of socially, because I, I went again, smaller arts college. So whenever there was a social event, you would run into professors and these mm -hmm. things. So they were connected to the community in a sort of larger sense. And uh, although I had an inkling on how they were very busy in terms of administrative things, because again, I was a research assistant for um, several uh, faculty members. So I got a sort of more of an inside look as to what they kind of have to do. Um, it, I wasn't quite aware of, you know, just how intensely um, administrative work is like part of the job of being a professor. Mm -hmm. 
And I also wasn't aware in the same way of the ways that what a professor looks like have changed, right? Because most of the people right. that I uh, meant that that I worked with, et cetera, um, were folks who were full professors um, or uh, pretty close to full. So their their lives are very different. When I actually sort of became a grad student, um, I became far more aware of certain things, right? So uh, as a faculty member, you have so many emails you've got to answer all, <laughs> all the time. It just, it never stops. Like I will be teaching and I just keep hearing, you know, I turn off my sound, but I can keep hearing it all the time in my teaching, like bling, 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 you know, as the emails come in all the time. There are so many committees you are on um, constantly. And there are committees that sometimes really make a difference. And sometimes there are committees that the university creates sort of how nothing happens, right? So you're in committees all the time. And then also the pressures uh, for junior academics. So people who are assistant mm. professors and younger or like younger in sort of in terms of their career stage, right? So junior academics um, are like usually assistant professors, postdocs. I also include uh, grad students. Um, some people do, some people don't, um, are very different than they were, you know, even 10, even 20 years ago, right? So the demands or the requirements for research, right? How many articles you've got to publish, how many books you've got to publish before you can even get tenure, just out of the stratosphere in terms of the amount of labor that's required, right? Um, and so there are lots of things, like lots of nuances that you sort of don't know about until you enter into it. And then you don't even know until you become a professor, right? So like as a grad student, I wasn't even fully aware of how wild it gets. Um, but now as a professor, you sort of get an inside look of the sort of dynamics of these things. So that, I think that was a major, not surprise, but um, that was, I guess it was a surprise, a major surprise of being, um, entering into the academy. Um, something I wasn't surprised about is that obviously the academy um, and obviously universities are institutions, which means that how they're built on the certain kinds of foundations that build our society, which is oftentimes racism, sexism, um, right. lots of different um, structures, uh, structures of um, disenfranchisement, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and so that hasn't been surprising, right? The ways that universities, uh, much like mostly neoliberal institutions, structure themselves sort of how they mask these realities. Um, right. <laughs> and uh, when they don't mask these realities, they try to remove the problems very easily. And so um, those are very real realities that were not a surprise because I was primed before I even entered by mentors to say like, listen, just be aware that these are things that are gonna be very real. Um, and so um, I think for some folks, the academy is a beautiful space, um, but that has not been the case ever, I think, with many folks who are now entering the academy who are first gen. Um, so they're first in the family to go to college, first in the family to get PhDs oftentimes, um, and um, grew up low, folks who grew up low income, folks who are racialized, folks who are like, just like uh, having this, like dealing with disabilities or mm. folks who are uh, gender non-conforming, et cetera. I think the academy has always been a space that can sometimes provide community, um, but oftentimes has been a space of navigating and negotiating um, different kinds of levels of violence. Um, and so uh, one of the things that's been unsurprising is that, but one of the things that has been surprising is the sheer number of people who are junior folks um, who are higher up, uh, full professors associates who are trying to change that. Um, it's been slow going because institutions are very good at digging in their heels, but it's been lovely to meet people who are along the same lines and thinking the same thing. So, yeah. Nice, yeah. I like what you mentioned with your classes being like hour and a half to three hours. I know that one of the main criticisms that I had in your class was that we never had enough time to actually, you know, get into a really good discussion, um, which was a criticism, but also one of the things that I loved the most about it uh, is that I always wanted to go to your class and I always wanted more. Um, and you mentioned having like mentors who were sort of like guiding you through the process into academia and warning you ahead of time about, you know, the academy and the sort of 
struggles that you might face. Can you tell us a little bit about like your mentors and your idols and like in particular, which women have inspired you? Yes. Um, So in undergrad, uh, one of the major, two of the major influences on me were Marissa Parm. Um, She's a black woman uh, who was at Amherst College while I was there. She's now currently at uh, the University of Maryland College Park, UMD. And she was um, someone that I had taken, I, I think I took every class I could with her in my like sort of time while I was there. Um, she was fantastic. She was um, an associate professor, I believe, when I started. Um, by the time I left uh, with my, after my post back, I think she had gone up a full already and gotten it. She was uh, one of the few Black women at the institution, um, was really fantastic. One of the things I think I really appreciated about her uh, and many of the mentors I've had in my many years is that she didn't um, pretend that some of the like terrible, you know, work that I submitted was good. Right. Right. So like, <laughs> there were times when I submitted a really bad paper and she said, Kim, this is not your best effort. And I said, oof, okay, <laughs> wow. That really hit me. Right. And, and she didn't pull like, you know, sort of her quote unquote punches, um, which I don't really like to use that metaphor, but she didn't really try to mask the fact that sometimes like she had higher expectations. Um, mm for me. Um, and that really, I think, pushed me in ways that were really fantastic. Um, another person who was really fantastic was Rhonda Cobham Sander, another Black woman who was at Amherst, uh, again, one of the few Black women who were, who were there. And uh, magically, most of the Black women in, in the university or the, the college were in the English department, which was just like a nice, wonderful uh, coincidence, maybe or not. Um, and um, I also took courses with her. She was one of the um, folks that I was a research assistant for um, in my family. She was one of the folks, she was the one who I mentioned, who was like, hey, maybe you should consider being a professor. You might like it, you know? Um, and she was really fantastic because, you know, by being a research assistant for her, I really kind of got an inside look as to how, um, uh, not just how a class is formed because I was helping it create a, a brand new class, but also how you could work with people at other institutions to build kinds of communities that you want, right? Um, because the course that she was building was being co-taught at at the University of Florida and um, one of the universities, I'm not remembering the name. Um, and so that was really interesting. So those were like two sort of figures for me. In grad school, my um, advisors were major influences. So those were Ann Cheng, Ruha Benjamin, um, Simon Gikandi, Kanoe Nishikawa. Um, and then there were a plethora of other folks who were really uh, crucial t- as mentors. Um, Christina Leon was a major one. Um, and those were all, I went to grad school at Princeton University um, and they're all currently there. Um, and they all sort of had different ways and different um, different ways of uh, communicating with me and different ways that they helped me, right? So mm-hmm. for example, um, Kanoe Nishikawa, who was one of my uh, mentors, um, took a really dedicated approach to giving me feedback on my dissertation at the time. Um, he would regularly meet up to sort of ask about uh, what I wanted to do in life, right? Not just me as an academic, but me as a person. What do you want to do in life? What do you want out of it? Um, Christina Leon, who was another uh, faculty member there, um, was really helpful when I was on the job market. So there were all of these like wonderful mentors that I had. Anne Chang, mm-hmm. who I consider to be um, an extremely dear and close uh, friend because she was one of my major advisors. Um, while I was in grad school um, and who wrote, who has done so quite so much for me, right? Quite a lot for me actually in many of the years. 
um, is just like a deeply kind person, which is very hard to find. I think there's also folks who are nice, but nice is a sort of veneer for, I think, a certain kind of way of moving through the world. And she's genuinely a deeply kind person. So there are so many ways that folks um, really helped me through in different ways. Um, and I admire them all. And I, I, I have a running list. One of the things I've done is I have a running list of all the people I want to thank um, when I have my book come out, which is a major you know, accomplishment for junior faculty, a book. Um, and all the reasons I'm going to thank them for, um, for like getting me through things, you know, like Ruha Benjamin, thank you for showing me how to like be an amazing teacher, right? Um, she's mm -hmm. like my sort of icon and model for what it is to be an instructor in many ways. Um, thank you to my cat, um, who is a mentor <laughs> in many ways and shows me how to rest and how to sleep um, when I need it and how to, you know, focus on myself sometimes. So there are many ways that people can mentor me um, and have mentored me. And I thank my friends, you know, who mentor me in different ways about how to relate with the world, et cetera. And so um, I thank students that I've had, you know, who have really like made the joy of teaching and researching so much more um, felt and so much more palpable to me. Um, because there are many ways that the research that we do in certain fields so like for me in black studies um, and for the research i do a lot of it is extremely painful to do and to read mm. um, and to research and um there's a really massive importance that is um i think placed on finding folks who can help you through that and and i think students are a major part of that like they bring joy to it it's like reminds you why you're actually digging in the archives and reading these really terrible stories um so yeah so so many wonderful mentors but those are just a few of them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. thank you And um, so earlier on, you mentioned um, some of the difficulties um, that people can face, especially due to the different um, intersectionalities of their identities. Um, and so we wanted to ask, um, what were some of the difficulties you faced in academia and what advice would you give to um, women or uh, just people in general facing the same difficulties? Um, so I think my, my advice, um, major advice would be so I think one of the things that happens, um, and I think that everyone's grad experience is different. Um, mm -hmm. I um, had moments of real struggle, um, but there are also moments of, of great joy, right? And the joy was oftentimes produced by the people I got to meet and, and converse with and build relationships with. Um, and the struggles oftentimes have to do with, again, institutional mm -hmm. um, sedimentation or, or, or structures, um, and also the sort of social practices that I think um, grad school and the academy can produce, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so an example of that might be, um, I don't know if this is, is if this has happened to any of you in your classes, but um, you know when you're in class sometimes um, and there's one or maybe more people who just insist upon using language that no one else quite understands. Mm -hmm. And there's a sort of refusal to articulate what they mean. Right. Um, and that refusal is not a refusal of not realizing others don't know, but a refusal to engage in a sort of commonality of conversation. Mm -hmm. And also a way of um, demonstrating to others that they somehow have knowledge that um, is behind a sort of paywall, right? Like if you mm -hmm. don't know what this is, like that's not like, clearly you're not in on it right like you're not and so it's level. about establishing a certain hierarchy right mm -hmm. it's a hierarchy and there's something that's extremely alienating when that happens right um oftentimes folks who do that you know oftentimes are like you know everybody eye rolls or whatever but there's a way that in grad school um those performances can be exacerbated precisely because there's a lot of precarity uh, mm -hmm. within the profession 
And so folks feel like they have to perform a certain kind of um, expertise that they may, may or may not have, right. um, but that is expertise is embedded in a certain depth of insecurity, right? So that's the sort of one sort of social um, uh, structure that you have to deal with. And that's on top of already the sort of racist, classist, sexist behaviors that people bring with them and that did, and they oftentimes deny, right? So mm -hmm. one of the, the struggles with um, going to grad school and then going into the profession is that how everybody thinks that how they're really smart. <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> Everyone is very educated. It's very true that if you get a PhD, you are very educated. However, are you very smart or intelligent, whatever you want to use, or um, what, or if you're a person who is able to understand, have emotional intelligence, like I think there are all these ways that you can measure how a person moves through a world. Um, and I think one of the pitfalls of um, getting these sort of more advanced degrees is that how people oftentimes very quickly begin, begin to believe that they are somehow exceptional mm -hmm. um, compared to other folks. And I think that sort of gap becomes a very um, powerful irritant um, mm -hmm. to folks who don't really agree with that, right? Um, who don't move through the world that way. Um, and who also, as you said, are dealing with all these different um, uh, identities um, that are um, historically marginalized and oftentimes have to face certain kinds of violences, right? So mm -hmm. um, one of the ways that I've had to navigate that or one of the pieces of advice I would offer, uh, folks have to navigate that much like I did. You know, I can remember in my very first year, very sem first semester of grad school, um, doing a, a presentation and uh, this other graduate student um, who was a white cis man who was in maybe I think German department, very, very, we call them theory bros, quote unquote, um, <laughs> um, then proceeded to turn to the professor and say, I didn't understand a single thing that she said. What was that? Right. And so like oh, an intense wow. sort of moment, like that's, a, that was a very yeah. small moment in the sort of long history of, of things that happened. Right. And, mm -hmm. I, and that's a thing that happens actually quite frequently for folks um, who are just starting off in grad school, who are moving through space, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a way that you can see how that's a, um, an intense microaggression. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. To, to say something like that when um, in fact, then everyone else in the class understood what was going on and understood the presentation and like mm -hmm. had questions, et cetera. So um, one of the ways that I figured out how to navigate that and that I, I recommend or a piece of advice is to, again, find community um, and build mm -hmm. it, right? Um, and understand that community has should not have anything to do with the institution, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean how those folks are not part of the institution, right? So um, I am part of the UBC institution now as a faculty member. It doesn't mean I'm of it, which is to say that how, it doesn't mean how I support, uh, um, advocate for... Um, um, whatever else it might be, it's um, policies, et cetera, et cetera. It means that I have a job there, right? And so like understanding mm -hmm. that how being in grad school, being in the academy is a job um, and understanding how, how you create community has to be outside of that job, right? Mm -hmm. So some of my closest friends are in the academy. Um, you go through a lot together and so you build very strong connections for that reason. Right. But the way that we relate doesn't have to do with the academy, right? We relate to each other as people, um, as full people with full lives, um, with interests, et cetera. So find community. Um, cultivate and continue to cultivate your interests. You're not just a grad student. You're not just a professor. You're not just a student, whatever it might be. Right. You're a person, right? Moving through the world. So what do you do for fun? You know, the number mm -hmm. of people who can't answer that question, it's really um, heartbreaking actually. So what do you do for fun? Well, I read, okay, that's great. What else do you do? Do you, like reading is fantastic, but that's also your job. So what do you do outside of that? Do you right. um, go and do you run? Do you make movies? Do you dance? Do you mm -hmm. hike or ski? So like develop yourself as a full person, you know? Um, definitely have boundaries around when you work and how you work. I 
email and everything is shut off by 5 p.m. every day for me. I don't look at email. I don't do work on the weekends. It's an absolute not. Um, Amelia, as you know, in my classes, I set a 48-hour response time for all emails, and that's what I do for every email that I get. I don't respond to emails as I get them. I usually respond after two days, if not longer. Some of them are weeks long, but we won't talk about that. Um, <laughs> And so there's very certain important boundaries that have to be built in and you have to build them in early. It took me a long time to realize how to build boundaries like that um, and to actually implement them. And by the time I actually tried to implement some of them, it became um, awkward for people who thought of me as a different kind of person, right? So they thought of me as a person who responds to emails immediately, immediately, immediately. And then when I started, started leaving emails until, you know, 48 hours, they were like, oh, what's going on? And it's like, no, you got to set your boundaries very early, find your people mm. very early, build community outside of the institution very early, go to therapy. I said that earlier, but it's so necessary. <laughs> therapy, I think therapy is one of the underrated like sort of um, health options mm -hmm. that people uh, oftentimes can't access because of the cost, yeah. um, how opaque it is, like, how do you get into therapy and how do you find a therapist, et cetera. But if you have the means and if you have um, the time and if you have the structure for it, like please go to therapy. Um, so that's what I would say about the thing, the advice that I would have, um, yeah. Thank you. That's really valuable, especially to I know we have a lot of undergraduate listeners. And so there's definitely a lot of advice that they can get from that. Yeah. So you mentioned um, like having a list of people to thank when your book yes. comes out. Um, yes. Our next question for you is what your proudest uh, moment in academia is your biggest achievement. Is it working on this book? Is it something else? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Huh. I would say my proudest moment actually um, was uh, I had a student. Um, this was in, when I was in grad school, when I taught in grad school. Um, I had a student who um, uh, was in one of my sections and um, we'd been, you know, having our discussions, et cetera, over the course of the semester. Um, she was so lovely. She was really interested in fashion, um, really thought deeply about the question of fashion. It was a, it was a class on cuteness um, and race, right? So it was all about how cuteness as a um, affect, as a descriptor, um, mm. et cetera, is actually um, a term that is used to racialize certain people, right? So it's particularly mm. when we think about the question of Asianness and like how cuteness is attached to it, like kawaii, mm -hmm. like Japanese culture, like et cetera, right? Um, and so she was really interested in fashion and she, you know, was doing a, a deep dive on cute fashion, et cetera. And um, she was just fantastic, you know, and everything. And I, you know, I, I, I try to, in my classes, create a space where people can be vulnerable and like, you know, explore whatever kinds of um, strengths or weaknesses they want to. Um, and at the end of the semester, um, I, I wasn't sure um, how the class was going for her, right, to be clear. Because um, sometimes she was there, sometimes she wasn't. Um, and at the end of the class, she sent me this long email and uh, she was like, I just want to say thank you uh, for being such an amazing um, like teacher instructor this year. Um, I know that how like I wasn't um, always there and everything, but I was going through some really difficult stuff. But I always felt that how you never judge me for that difficulty. And you created mm -hmm. a space where I could work through that and ask questions that I had. Um, and she sent this really long and beautiful email, just like basically describing the, the effect that I had on her. And then later on, we had a phone call and we chatted and everything. And I would say that actually, and this has happened a few times, um, and that actually um, with the same student where she's followed up and said like, hey, like this new thing has happened in my life and I just wanted to let you know, et cetera. Um, and I think those are the sort of moments that are that make me the happiest or the proudest, mm -hmm. yeah. right? It's not even about like what I have done per se, but rather that it's 
that um, at least uh, the space that I created was a space that a student could actually find some sort of like traction for whatever they were working through, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about how that important was for me, how important that was for me when I was an undergrad, when I was a graduate student, right? To work through on different scales, right? The political, the social, the personal, et cetera, what was going on in my life, what was going on in the world at large, um, and find someone who had the sort of capacity to have that kind of compassion or have that capacity to give me the tools to do it. Um, and I would say those are sort of the best moments, I would say, um, when you can sort of see that happen for a student. Um, the best moments are not really my research per se. I enjoy my research, to be clear, right? Or enjoy is a, a tough word to say. It's a lot of difficulty, <laughs> but it's a, it's, it's a fulfilling um, research that I do. And mm-hmm. there are... Um, professional successes that I really enjoy. Like, oh, I got this article published this place or, oh, I got this article accepted or this thing has happened or there's interest in this. But I think it's sort of the moments where um, you see that the things that you care about um, do have an effect on others, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That matter to me the most um, or that feel the the sort of best for me. It's like, oh, okay, this is the thing. I've actually saved the letter that she sent um, and I have it printed out for moments when I feel most down as like a sort of like pick me up. I'm just like, okay. Like, even if all of this collapses and the world ends, like at least like one person, there was one person that I affected in this way. And that's really what it is about. Um, so I'd say that was a, a major, um, a major professional like success that I, that I recall. Yeah. Mm, thank you for that. That's really beautiful. Um, and kind of along that um, same vein of um, things that uh, reflecting on things uh, throughout your career, um, what's the most valuable lesson that you've learned whilst working in this field? Oh, most valuable lesson. Uh, hmm, get it in writing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, everything, every, this is not maybe, not, maybe this is not the most valuable lesson. I would say like I've, I've already said other things like community building, et cetera. But this mm-hmm. is another lesson that I've learned, which is get everything in writing that um, you need to, right? Um, so that means um, for better or worse, right? So in the case of the worst, if something happens and you follow up with someone and you have an informed conversation, make sure you send that email afterwards, checking in and saying, this is what we said, and this is what you said, and this is what mm-hmm. happened. <laughs> because email, email stands for evidence. The E in email stands for evidence. <laughs> so get that in writing. And if it's a good thing, right? So if someone says, I'm going to give you thousand dollars follow up with that email and say thank you so much for agreeing to give me a thousand dollars where right. can I, I can get it right like you need to get everything in writing and this is a, a fact for all of life right like any contract you're going to sign anything you want to do get it in writing it's not real if it's on the phone like <laughs> um definitely just get it all written down um it may not it may not mean that you'll get the thing if it's in writing but at least you can point to a thing when it's in writing right. um, yeah. um so um, and then the other thing I would say is um, the getting and writing part is also includes um, successes that you have, right? So like when you have a, a good thing, when a good thing happens, write it down in a book of, I have a, two books. One is my black book or my burn book, I call it. And the other one is my good book, right? My good book is all the happy things that happen throughout a day or throughout a week or a month. And so when I'm feeling down, such as when I mentioned with the student letter, I can go back to it and just like look at that wonderful thing and say like, ah, okay, that wonderful thing happened. And that was great. Um, And then I have a burn book, which is like the terrible things that happen that I want to not dwell on, right? So if a bad thing happens, I write it down in that book, I close the book and I don't think of it and I put it to the side. Um, Mm. And if I need to revisit it, I can like write more thoughts on it, but it's a way to sort of process what's going on in my day to day. Um, So writing, 
essentially is therapeutic. Writing is great and writing is evidence. And so that's all I'll say about <laughs> advice. <laughs> Thank you. I, I mean, personally, I love the idea of having like two books, good, bad, yes. you know, having nice balance. Um, if you could go back to your younger self who wasn't even sure if she was going to go to college, like what her future plan was, if you could say something to her, what would you say? I think I would say um, two things, which is to stay curious, right? I think there's a way that um, as you get older, um, the delight that you get in failing disappears, right? Because failure becomes a sort of space of shame, um, or at least it did for me. I don't know if this is the case for y'all. Um, it might not be the case in which case, like absolutely, that's great. I'm so goddamn proud. But um, for me, it became a sort of space of an intense negative affect, right? Um, I went to a really intense high school that was a, a math and science um, specialized school that was like, you had to take an exam. And I, I've gone to all of these like schools and places where failure was not um, seen as a space for growth, but failure was seen as a personal um, shame, mm -hmm. right? Um, and for me in high school, going through that, I, by the way, I hated high school, but for me going through <laughs> high school, um, that really reshaped how I faced um, failure. It really shaped how I faced being curious, right? Because then curiosity became a thing that had to be measured um, by a certain metric of whether or not it was a safe curiosity or not, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think I would want to let myself know to stay curious and to, to understand a feeling is good, you know? Um, it can be a real site of joy and delight um and, and that's one of the things i've been revisiting you know a lot more at this stage in my life which is just like feeling at things like and just being bad at it and, and being so glad to be bad at it you know mm -hmm. um so i would say that is a major thing i would say and the other thing i would say is um to keep writing by that i mean i used to as i said um i i uh, focused in creative writing when i was an undergrad and i i wrote quite a lot when i was in high school and undergrad and um that shifted drastically by the time i got to um sort of, I'd say my sophomore year of undergrad. And then by the time I was in grad school, it certainly like dropped away intensely. Um, but I think there is something about the act of creating worlds when you're writing um, mm. or worlds when you're doing any sort of artistic practice. In fact, for me, that was writing because I can't sing as much as I want to. I sound like a young Whitney Houston when she was a really young baby, um, which is to say I don't <laughs> sound good when I sing. Um, I'm, I'm not good at art. I'm not good at all. I don't play any instruments, you know, which is like another like sad thing about my life, like sad violin cue. Um, but I do write, right? And so I wish I had continued and kept up that artistic practice. And so so mm. I think whatever that practice might be for each individual person, but for me, it was writing. Like, I'm like, like, keep that up. Like, stay curious. Don't be afraid of failure. Not just don't be afraid of failure, but like, be delighted and be so goddamn excited to fail. Um, and then the other thing would be like, just keep up the artistic practice as much as you can um, because it's healing. Um, it's restful. So, yeah. Mm, awesome. Thank you so much. Um, and moving on, uh, we wanted to ask what your favorite book is or what book recommendations you might have for our listeners. Ooh, ooh. Um, I don't have a favorite book, which I think is the case for lots of folks who read. Um, it's very mm -hmm. difficult to say what my favorite book is. Um, the book that I'm reading right now, I guess I could tell y'all what I'm reading right now. Um, so one of the books I just, just bought and I'm just starting is a book by the scholar Jennifer Morgan. It's called Reckoning with Slavery, Gender, Kinship, and Capitalism in Early Black Atlantic. Um, so it's a little bit of an intense book, scholarly book. So if you're interested in that, check that out. Um, another book that I am just now checking out for the first time is it's a, it's a collection of 
like essays and images, et cetera. It's called um, Grief and Grievance. It's an art book, essentially, mm -hmm. um, that was based on, a, on an exhibit that was, I believe, at the MoMA. Um, and it's all about Black life um, in the United States. And so that's a really great collection if you're interested in that question. Um, and then for fun that I just sort of am reading just for the delight of it, I guess, um, I am reading the book Believers by Lisa Ko. Um, it was published, a, I don't know how long ago it was, but it's a book that as best as I can tell, I haven't finished it, I just, just started it, but I think it's about an adoptee who leaves home maybe. One of the, all I know is that the family members are professors and it's a terrible uh, <laughs> explanation of what it is to be a professor. Like nobody actually wants to be a professor the way that these people want to be professors. That's not accurate, um, I don't recommend it. So those are what I have on my like sort of like bedside table that I'm reading right now. Um, and then because I um, struggle with watching TV but I do enjoy watching TV occasionally. I've been watching um, Chair season two, um, which is, you know, they're back at it again. Um, <laughs> and um, I just started watching Arcane on Netflix, which is an animated. Oh, I've heard it's so good. Okay. Oh, it's a good. Okay. I yeah. just started it. So I'm excited for it. So those are the two things that I'm watching right now, Arcane and Chair. And then those are all the books that I'm like, I have them all stacked in just various ways and I've been reading it. Um, so yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. We have one last yeah. question for you. Yeah. Um, and that's, we were wondering about your goals, any plans for the future that you want to share with us? Yeah. Okay, plans for the future. Um, retirement, as I said, uh, retirement is going to be great. Um, uh, other things that I'm planning for. Uh, so I I always tell folks that how my uh, actual passion, uh, not my actual passion, but my passion, one of the things I want to see happen is I would like to create a bookstore cafe um, where um, it holds the books that are written by um, uh, marginalized folks, et cetera. Um, it's going to be a space as a community center, et cetera. Uh, and then on the top floor, it's going to have a pre-K kindergarten that's going to teach kids to be radical agents of social change or just cultivate that kind of aspect. And so they're going to have little marches around the block every you know, Friday, teaching them chants like, hey, ho, hey, hey, ho, ho, white supremacy's got to go, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and on the top floor, I'm going to have a rooftop garden for the community and like on the walls and everything. That's what I want to have. So. That's like in the future also, um, but in the nearer future, uh, I guess I should talk about um, in the nearer future, I'm going to be hosting um, a series of writing retreats um, for um, folks who are like doing the work of theorizing or practicing black feminist theory. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's going to be a space for artists, activists, um, scholars, etc to gather together and just like work on the process of it. I started doing it last summer uh, where I had these like sort of small intimate groups and I wanna have a little bit of more of a larger scale one this summer coming up. So I'm gonna be doing that. Um, and then beyond that, it's just like planning for when I can get my third cat um, because that's wonderful. And um, when I'm gonna find time to make myself a pie, I would like to make myself an apple pie or a blueberry pie or something like that in the coming weeks. So those are my sort of more short term plans, so yeah. Wow, thank you so much. Thank it's you. been a real pleasure yeah. talking to you and getting yeah, to see you again after class. And thank you. We really appreciate the wisdom that you've given us in this interview. Um, I feel very inspired. Like I just want to go take every single one of your courses now. So if you see me, don't be surprised. <laughs> okay, that would be fantastic. Um, but thank you both for interviewing me and being so lovely as like interlocutors and, you know, for creating such a wonderful space. Uh, I hope that everybody, I mean, I know that I got this out of it. I got a lot out of this conversation, just like reflecting back on my own life and also just chatting with you all. But I hope everyone else also gets a lot of it because this was wonderful. Yes, Thank definitely. Thank you, Thank you so, so much. much. <laughs>
And now it's time for our last segment, and that's on you. This is a segment where you, the audience, can participate by responding to our final question. Since we interviewed one of the women who inspires us, we wanted to ask you who is your favorite woman in academia. You can submit your responses to the Google Doc linked in the description or DM us on Instagram or Facebook. We will feature your responses in our next episode. Thank you so much to our special guest, Professor Bain, and thank you to our audience for listening. I'm Megan. I'm Amelia. And that's on Equity. Equity.